So this evening I want to explore the question of what it means to lead an ethical life. And I'm going to start by uh, posing the question as to what the practice of meditation is about. You know, why do we do it? For some of us, perhaps, it's more than just the formal practice of meditation. We might describe what we're doing as part of our practice of the Dharma, our Dharma practice. But again, to step back and ask ourselves, but why do we do that? Why do we do this? Why are we Buddhists or Christians? or whatever we might identify ourselves as. Or perhaps we have no formal spiritual or religious identity at all. We think of ourselves as, as purely secular individuals trying to make the most of our life on this earth. But even so, the same question uh, lies behind so much of what uh, we set out to do in our lives, what draws us, what calls us. I think it's uh, one way to think of this is when we come back from a retreat, this retreat, for example, and we meet up with our friends, with our family, and they ask us quite innocently, um, but why do you go on retreat? Why do you sit for hours on end in silence watching your breath? Why? Now, I'm, I'm going to suggest, and of course you may not agree with me, that um, this practice, that this, uh, whether it's in terms of being the Dharma, or whether it's meditation, uh, is not, I feel, adequately answered by saying, well, I want to be enlightened. Or, I want to become a, a very proficient meditator. My sense is that for, for many of us, that this practice has to do with somehow addressing the larger question of what does it mean to live a full and flourishing human life. And in that sense, we can't really reduce the answer to the question, why do I do it, by naming some um, simple goal like enlightenment or awakening, which of course only pushes the question one step further back. You know, why do you want to be enlightened? Why do you want to be awakened? And I feel it's very important to keep coming back to this primary question. It's very easy, and I think those of us who have been doing this for some time are probably familiar with this, is that we might have started this practice full of enthusiasm, uh, full of inspiration, 
and we might have even become quite good at it. But over the course of time, sometimes the whole practice or the whole exercise starts losing its, its power. It becomes rather flat. It might become rather routine, repetitive. Something that we find we do because there's a little voice internalized within us that suggests that we, we, we should or we ought to meditate, even when we don't feel like it. So these moments when we lose touch with the sources of our deepest inspiration are moments where it can be helpful to ask very sincerely and without an expectation of some sudden revelation of an answer, the question, why am I doing this? Why am I sitting here? Why? If we think of this practice as something that addresses the whole of our humanity, the whole of what we are, not just our, our spiritual life or our inner life or whatever we call it, we have, I think, to go beyond the idea that it's all about meditation. It's all about becoming proficient in a set of skills, mindfulness, concentration, loving-kindness, all of these different uh, methods and techniques, and of course, as we know, there are many, many more. But it has to do somehow with um, something that transcends any one of those particular exercises. Traditionally, and I'm going to speak from now on very much in a Buddhist frame, it has to do with what are called uh, the three trainings or the threefold training, which is the training in sila, which we can translate as virtue, the training in samadhi, which we might translate loosely as meditation, and the training in understanding or wisdom, panya, which I think at some level we could almost translate as philosophy. Philosophy not as an academic discipline, but philosophy uh, as a practice of a committed uh, thinking life. And this overall practice, which includes virtue, which includes meditation, which includes philosophy, to practice these three uh, things together in some kind of integrated way is what um, the Greeks called ethics. So we must be careful here not to confuse ethics with, with morality. In other words, observing certain precepts, um, following certain uh, rules, which often are very important in maintaining and regulating social interactions and so forth and so on. But ethics transcends that. Ethics is something more. 
Ethics is rooted in the word ethos, which means something like character. And it has to do in many ways with engaging in a practice that helps us, or we believe helps us, in becoming the sort of person we aspire to be. That, I think, is very much at the heart of, of what we mean by ethics. What sort of person do I want to be? And again, this is a question that we might not phrase quite in those words, but when, for example, we read literature, we read a, a novel, we watch a play or a movie, um, the characters, uh, in a way, are representing uh, what uh, different ways you can be human. And some of them we identify with and admire, others we uh, are critical of and look down on. But those sorts of reflections and the way in which literature uh, can often engage us is very much in offering us a mirror uh, to our own aspirations for the kind of person we would aspire to be. And again, the word aspire tells us that we may not actually fulfill that uh, aspiration uh, all the time, maybe only rarely. We are conscious, perhaps, of the different ways in which we fall short of that ideal. We aspire to be loving, let's say, but we keep catching ourselves doing rather selfish and petty and unloving things. We might aspire to be tolerant, and yet at various moments in our lives, we notice that we have a quite, we're quite good at being intolerant. And it's in that, um, in that disjunction between what we aspire to and what we actually do that we come to the core ethical question. How can I live up to what it is that I want to be? And not just what I want to be for myself, but how I want to present myself and be understood and appreciated and accepted by others. How do I want to appear in this world? How do I want to operate? How do I want to be remembered in this world? Another way we might consider this is how do we become fully human? How do we become wholly human? How do we live a life in all aspects of our existence in which we uh, realize a sense of fullness, a sense of completeness? The Greeks, again, have a term for this, which they call eudaimonia. And this is sometimes rendered simply as happiness. But nowadays, uh, 
it tends to be translated as human flourishing. In other words, how can we flourish fully as the person that we aspire to be? I think this idea of, of wholeness or completeness is implicit in the word sama, which is usually translated in, um, in, in English as right. So we hear about right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, and so on, which are, of course, the constituents of what the Buddha calls uh, the Eightfold Path, or the Noble Eightfold Path. But the term in Pali, um, Sama, doesn't, I think, really mean right. It means something uh, closer to complete or whole or integrated. Remember the word integrate or integral uh, is connected to the Latin word integer, which means a whole number, not a part or partial number, but a whole number. So my sense is that the Eightfold Path is outlining in the way we see things, think about them, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we work, the way we pay attention, the way we focus, the way we apply our energies, in such a way that they work together to realize a kind of uh, fullness or wholeness or integration of our life that realizes what it is that we aspire to be in the fullness of our humanity. And this is the practice of ethics. And it includes virtue, it includes meditation, it includes philosophy or wisdom. Now I think it's important to periodically um, take account of this bigger picture and as you have no doubt noticed I'm referring not just to the Buddhist tradition which talks of the three trainings, the Eightfold Path but also the Greek traditions that come from uh, Socrates and Aristotle the Epicureans, the Stoics and so on who I think have a similar kind of framework in which to, uh, to practice. And in fact, this brings us very much to what it means, or the question of what it means to practice. Again, there's a tendency um, in, let's say, the Buddhist world, that when you ask what a person's practice is, you will very often get an answer that will name a particular meditative technique. Or oh, my practice is Zen or Vipassana or, or, or Vajrayana or whatever it is. As though the practice can somehow be reduced to a particular 
exercise or skill, by becoming proficient in which, you um, then become, as it were, um, realized or enlightened. But this conflicts uh, with the actual underpinnings of the whole of Buddhist thought, in which meditation or concentration is actually only a part of the overall training or discipline or practice that we're involved in. So ethical practice um, encompasses all of these things and I think to be understood we need to somehow not only consider what it is that, that moves us to engage in such practices but also once again to consider the kind of person that we aspire to be through which this practice can be realized. And in this sense, we become, as, um, uh, as one philosopher, the German uh, contemporary thinker, Peter Sloterdijk, calls uh, a practicing human. And in his analysis of this, which is a very helpful one, I think, it's very much rooted in the, in the Western tradition, but he also was someone who spent some time in India as a sannyasin. So he's also aware of the uh, Indian traditions as well. And what it, um, I think, points to is that um, this practice of ethics uh, or this practice of being human starts by making a conscious decision to no longer unthinkingly lead a life that is uh, driven by simply the impulses of our biology on the one hand, that is no longer simply driven by the internalized commands or dictates of our society, in other words, those habits of behavior and those habits of response and morality that we are educated in as children and raised in a particular social milieu. Nor is it living a life unthinkingly uh, driven by the habits of our own personal psychology. In other words, what we have got so used to doing, and it may be neurotic, it might be um, driven by all kinds of biases and fears and, and, and attachments and so on, that lead us to, again, unthinkingly say and do things uh, quite uh, uh, spontaneously, but often in ways that we subsequently regret, because those ways of reacting somehow conflict with the image we have of the sort of person we aspire to be. And of course also, uh, this practice, or becoming a practicing human, um, means that we uh, are no longer driven by the, uh, the habits of our religious traditions. 
the ones, where, again, we internalize um, as a young person, either by attendance at a church or a temple or a synagogue or a mosque. And they just become, as it were, second nature. We haven't really uh, thought deeply about these precepts. We've simply taken them on board. And so there may come a moment in our lives, and those of us who have chosen to spend a week in a place like this, engaging in these sorts of exercises, reflecting on these kinds of ideas, um, have probably uh, made a choice not to live according to those uh, well-known and well-established norms of our society, our religion, our biology, our, um, our, our society, our so or whatever, but to try to live otherwise, to try to live another kind of life, and this is the point at which we ask the sort of question such as, you know, what sort of person do I want to be? And how might I set about becoming that kind of person? So what do they call this in uh, traditional Buddhism? I think the best word that captures this is renunciation. Um, renunciation. Again, a term that is not uh, terribly uh, popular in modern uh, consumer societies like ours. We're not encouraged to renounce things, but to accumulate things, get things. So what does renunciation mean? Even in those cultures or religions that... Uh, give a high value to renunciation, it's often thought of as a kind of outward um, gesture in which we opt to pursue uh, a somewhat more ascetic lifestyle. In Buddhism, it's very much associated uh, with becoming a monk or a nun, who are people sometimes called renunciants. People who are said according to the traditional formula to have left home for homelessness. In other words, to leave behind a life of domesticity, of, uh, of uh, work, of family, in order to pursue a life that's committed to uh, spiritual values. We meditate, we do all these things. But the trouble with that picture is that I feel it only really addresses uh, the, uh, the, the surface of what is meant by renunciation. You can imagine a person who has gone through all of the outward uh, forms of leaving home for homelessness, shaving their head, putting on robes, joining a monastery, taking vows. But that could be um, just a change in lifestyle. And the motives for doing that could be various. It might be that you simply uh, uh, can't cope 
with the pressures of the workplace or you're frightened of, of intimacy, perhaps. There could be any number of reasons. So at, at root, renunciation, I feel, has to do with making this conscious choice to no longer lead one's life in a way that's dictated or driven by the norms of biology, society, psychology, religion, and to choose to live otherwise. There's a, a phrase that is repeated uh, throughout the uh, Pali Canon where the Buddha says, a life at home is full of dust. A life gone forth is open wide. In other words, a life that's led according to, the, um, uh, the, to, to our comfort zone, as we say today, um, is one that in a way becomes so familiar and so well um, established in everything we think and say and do that it becomes, as it were, dusty. It, be it accumulates layers of, um, of a kind of familiarity, uh, a kind of inertia, uh, that it has a sort of dulling effect. It's sometimes described as being repetitive, of cyclical. We just keep on going over the same thoughts, the same ways of speaking, the same ways of acting, day after day, year after year. And we have this rather uncomfortable sense sometimes that we're not really getting anywhere. We're doing a lot, we're very busy, but deep down we're not really evolving or flourishing as the kind of person we would aspire to be. So this means that renunciation need not have anything whatsoever to do with becoming uh, a formal renunciant monk or nun. In fact, the person living um, a renunciant life in the deepest sense uh, could still be very much part of the world. That can be the framework for his or her practice in the deepest sense. And I suspect for many of us who come to places like Gaia House, onto retreats like this, we may have no interest in formally ordaining into a religious order. It might strike us as a rather alien and um, unnecessary thing to do. But it doesn't mean that we are not uh, passionate in our longings to lead uh, a flourishing ethical life. So when we talk of a secular Buddhism, we're really talking about a practice of the Dharma that is totally embedded in the structures of this world, of this time, and of this age. And the whole distinction between lay and monastic doesn't really have a place anymore. But rather, our renunciation is the renunciation of leading 
a life that is repetitive, leading a life that we feel to be only engaging certain parts of ourselves rather than the whole of ourselves, leading a life that's, uh, or renouncing a life that seems in some sense to be fragmented. We have ourself who goes to work, we have a self that lives in the family, we have a self that uh, goes on retreat, but they don't really have an awful lot to do with each other. They meet up all the time because they're in the same body, but they're not really integrated. And we switch off different bits of them depending on where we are. And at some level I feel this is unsatisfying. We don't really feel that this is a, a fulfilled uh, or, or wholly human life. We might even feel uh, that we're somehow um, not really being totally honest when, when we're at work or when we're with our family or when, as opposed to when we're in our Buddhist center or to our Christian church. It's a different conflicting selves that are not allowing uh, an acknowledgement of each other in these different places. We might talk of this as a, an inauthentic existence. The Buddha uses the expression um, an arid existence. Arid. Arid meaning uh, a place that's dry and barren where nothing grows. And the practice of the Dharma is to leave a life of aridity behind, to renounce an arid life and to seek to live one's life as, and the metaphors the Buddha uses are those of a, of a farmer who irrigates a field with water, which is very much an image of, um, of flourishing, of bringing something to fruition, of allowing something to grow. But what often is experienced, and we find um, this both in the Buddhist and in the Greek traditions, and in the Christian tradition, is that when we embark on such an ethical life, when we make this choice to renounce a certain way we have been living and aspire to live according to um, another set of norms, that we discover that there's a deep-seated resistance within us to actually do that. And I feel a very simple example to illustrate this uh, on a meditation retreat is the experience we have of um, coming into this room, of sitting on the cushion, and let's say committing ourselves in this session to just focus on our breathing. Yeah, very simple. And we start and we're on the breath, we get still, we get quiet. And the next thing we know, we've been somewhere else. We've been distracted by a thought, we've followed a storyline, we've lapsed into a kind of partial consciousness. We've perhaps even forgotten what it was that was so 
enticing that took us away from the breath. And we kind of come back, we recover a sense of, ah, the breath. As we keep saying in our instructions, come back to the breath. Come back. Don't run away. So what we notice, um, and it can often afford us a degree of humility, is that despite our best intentions, we keep, in a way, undermining ourselves, not following through with what we might very sincerely aspire to do. So in other words, it's all very well to have a clear image of the sort of person we would like to be. That sort of person might be one who's able to to focus and stay on a single object or a single task without distraction. And yet we find that what we actually do, or what actually happens, because we don't choose to be distracted, it's not as though we're sitting here and we say, hmm, I think I'll be distracted now. It happens to us. It breaks in. These habits... um, interrupt what we're doing, and off we go. Sometimes we feel as though our whole body-mind is rebelling against this practice. And we feel a a kind of an instinctive longing to return to what is comfortable, predictable, um, familiar, unchallenging, unthreatening. So the, an ethical life uh, is one in which we uh, become more and more conscious of these inner tensions and conflicts within us. And we make more and more of a resolve not to give in to them. And this doesn't mean that we suppress them or that we deny these things or we somehow struggle against them, but as we'll see in the next, uh, uh, in the coming days. Uh, We acknowledge them for what they are, but we don't buy into their story. We don't identify ourselves with what our mind is uh, uh, suggesting that we do. In traditional Buddhism, um, this phenomenon is perhaps best illustrated through the figure of Mara. Mara um, is the Buddhist equivalent of Satan, the demonic. And Satan functions in a very similar way in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Mara is literally the killer. That's what the word means. Uh, Mara is what stops us in our tracks. Mara is what um, uh, turns us away from what we're aspiring to realize, and uh, we get once more caught up and entangled in what the Buddha calls the snares or the traps of Mara or the fish hook of Mara. We get snagged, we get hooked, we get tugged away. And the Buddha also says there's nothing in this world as powerful as the forces of Mara. 
So one of the paradoxes, perhaps, with becoming a practicing human in taking on these, this ethical uh, commitment and aspiration is that that very act in itself um, confronts us with everything within our minds and our feelings and our thoughts that is used to behaving in the way it does. And we find that there's an enormous uh, uh, drive to keep going that way and not to uh, follow the um, aspirations of what we might consider to be um, you know, our truer self or something like that. Now this leads um, to the question, well, how therefore do we motivate ourselves in such a practice? Perhaps it's not enough just to say, you know, I'd aspire to be a better kind of person. I'd like to live a more integrated form of life. And we, we find, um, particularly in, um, in some later forms of Buddhism, something that is called the bodhisattva vow. And this bodhisattva vow, at some level, is um, actually an impossible vow. The version that um, I find the most um, succinct and the most um, uh, engaging is that which is often recited in the Zen tradition, although its origins actually are prior to Zen uh, in other forms of Chinese Buddhism. And they're called the Four Vows. The Four Vows. And I'll read them out. Sentient beings are boundless, it says, but I vow to free them all. Afflictions are inexhaustible, and I vow to sever them all. Dharma gates are numberless, I vow to learn them all. The Buddha way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. Now, I think this, uh, these uh, four statements um, suggest that what we're aspiring for is not literally realizable. If living beings or sentient beings are literally boundless, there's an infinite number of them, how can we realistically expect to be able to free them all from their delusions, from their suffering, and so on. If afflictions, and this means attachments and fears and hatreds and so on, are inexhaustible, in other words, there, there seems to be no end of them, then how can we possibly sever them all, cut them off? If the ways in which we can understand the Dharma are numberless, how can we possibly learn them all? And so on. 
And I think this points, uh, again, we must be careful, I think, not to take this literally, but I think it points to something very much at the heart of an ethical life. That it's not that we seek to formally accomplish these vows, but that given our sense of what it is to be in this world, in this strange and this strange world that almost infinitely exceeds us, is more than us, that transcends us in some ways. And we seek to respond to it in a, in a full and total manner. Then we're setting ourselves up to do something that um, in some ways will be endless. In some ways we'll constantly be um, still aspiring to realize. So this idea of aspiring to become the sort of person we would like to be, in many ways, I think, is an endless project. It's not as though at some point, X number of years down the line, we will get to the end of our path and we'll become a Buddha or a Christ figure or a fully realized master or something. But rather each moment... Uh, each day of our life, we seek as best we can uh, to fulfill and to realize what we could be. And we'll probably always fail at some level, but that in a sense is not the point. And I think Buddhism and perhaps many uh, Eastern religions particularly have posited these um, these, uh, these goals of enlightenment, there are various stages of enlightenment and so on. And that can provide us with a useful framework. But if we start taking it literally, I think we actually diminish uh, the power of those symbols and those, um, those uh, archetypes, those images. And we think of Dharma practice as something like an alternative career. Instead of becoming a CEO of a company, we're going to become um, an Arya Bodhisattva or a Buddha or a Zen master or something. That, I think, is missing very much the point of this choice we make to live otherwise, to aspire to realize the fullness of what we could be and to recognize that that fullness is something that is totally open-ended, is something that will just keep on going and that what matters is not the achievement of some hypothetical goal at a future point in time but rather to live each moment as fully and honestly in as flourishing a possible way that we can, in a way that's uh, no longer tricked by the um, voices of Mara, but one that affords 
the optimal capacity we have to respond wisely and lovingly and openly to the situation we're in at this moment. Not just our own private state of mind, but the social situation we find ourselves in, the environmental situation we find ourselves in. Yes, we do require certain images of a goal towards which we can focus our attention, but the practice is how well or poorly we realize that aspiration in this moment, here and now. Now these four vows, which I'm not going to say much more about now, are to me a way of understanding what in early Buddhism are called the Four Noble Truths. And I think the, these vows perhaps uh, preserve a memory in the mind of the tradition um, of what started out, I believe, as four tasks which subsequently became uh, consolidated by scholars into the Four Noble Truths. So what are these four tasks? Um, we find these in the very first discourse the Buddha is reputed to have given when he outlined the Four Noble Truths. But as the discourse comes to its conclusion, he describes his awakening not as having understood the Four Noble Truths, but as having accomplished four tasks, each truth, as it were, uh, referring to a particular uh, practice. And again, I think the language of truth, noble truth, um, obscures the centrality that these are not truths that could be right or wrong, but they are tasks that can be performed and accomplished or not. So the first of the tasks is to uh, comprehend dukkha, to embrace suffering, not to believe that life is suffering. That's a truth or not but to embrace or to engage fully with the condition of life as it presents itself to you in this moment. The second task is to let go of our instinctive reactivity. What we talked of earlier as the um, inertia of our biological habits, our social, psychological religious habits to let go of those well-oiled reactions in order to get to a non-reactive space within ourselves that we clearly behold. The third task is to see the possibility 
that such reactivity can stop. And that's the fulcrum on which an ethical life turns. So the fourth task is to actualize or cultivate or bring into being the path itself, the Eightfold Path. I'm not going to say anything more about that now because this is going to be what I will explore both in the uh, sessions in the morning. I'm going to present uh, the meditation uh, instructions in terms of these tasks and to see how mindfulness of the breath or the practice of loving-kindness or whatever formal exercise we do is held and is perhaps um, understandable more fully as a way of practicing these tasks. And in the subsequent talks that I'll be giving this week, likewise, we'll expand further on how these tasks can become a template for understanding what we mean by practice, by ethical practice, by becoming a practicing human, is, I think, outlined very um, clearly in this notion of these four tasks, which can also be seen in terms of these four vows. So that's all I want to um, uh, say this evening. Um, we have a few minutes. Um, if anyone has a, a question or a comment, we can explore that here. If not, we'll walk. Uh-huh. And it's a very tricky one because the Greeks themselves had a word for it. Titan is a, a human being, a flawed, imperfect human uh -huh. being, trying to become a titan, a giant. Mm. And it doesn't matter if the giant is a giant or a um, you know, meditative proficiency or ethical, it, it will still come with a, a very strong ego. It says, I have managed uh -huh. to defeat biology. And part of me is concerned that this might be a recipe for a sort of neurosis, uh -huh. spiritual neurosis. And could, it, could that itself be the voice of Mars telling me you can go beyond biology and become a sort of a really ethical uh, geezer. <laughs> geezer meaning bloke, right? 
person, super ethical geezer. Well, I think that's true, and um, again, in in the Zen tradition, they're very, very clear about this. Uh, the the fantasies we have about enlightenment, becoming a Buddha, um, are very often what stand in our way of actually practicing the Dharma. Um, and we can certain, I mean, in in other Western psychologies, this would be called inflation, in which we have a very overinflated sense of what we could be that um, might fuel a certain kind of uh, narcissism almost, but actually stand completely in the way of dealing appropriately with the demands of the actual situation at hand. And this is why I think it's, Im I think, so, I, I agree that there is definitely a tension between seeking to go beyond the, the dictates of our, our instincts, the dictates of our, our culture perhaps, our religion, uh, and at the same time um, leading a life that is uh, uh, fully engaged with the moment at hand. And that's the challenge, I think. And I think the four vows, in, again, is, is much used in Zen, is, I think, pointing to this same tension. It's positing an impossibility, but it's also committing oneself to do that. And I think it's in the consciousness of that actual impossibility that, uh, do, that, that somehow punctures the conceit of a kind of perfection. Titanism would be another way of saying that. Uh, so that we don't let ourselves get seduced by the fantasy of enlightenment, uh, which I think is very much the, uh, the voice of Mara. Mara, um, Mara is um, uh, completely insidious and is able to subvert even the most noble aspirations. Uh, I don't think that's a, a big secret. So somehow we have to hold this practice um, within uh, a sense of what it is that we seek to, uh, to go beyond in ourselves. I don't want to be a hateful, neurotic, uh, greedy, uh, fearful person. Uh, but my instinctual animal nature kind of drives me that way. But at the same time, such a um, practice requires that we are fully um, acknowledging and accepting and embracing of that very nature. This is what I'm going to look at a bit I tomorrow. If it could be a, a realizing that, a realizing that aspiration, that I can be a generous, and playful, open person, would be the full realization of my animality. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You see, that I think is what is, un is meant, at least this would be my interpretation, of the first of these four tasks, which is to fully know the condition we are in, to fully accept the condition we are in. Um, and if we don't do that, if we are not grounded in an ability to say, yes, I have lust, I have fear, 
I have hatred. These are arising within me and they're not temporary things that I can you know, one day just get rid of. They are embedded in my limbic system. Well, because animals have been, um, have been turned into a symbol of a certain kind of human failing. The animal embodies or symbolizes uh, moha, delusion, ignorance. And that's a purely anthropomorphic projection. Um, and they've come to symbolize that part of us. And that has been projected onto them completely unjustly, I feel. But, you know, the same, uh, women have suffered likewise from the projection of Buddhist monks and so-called experts. <laughs> yes? Yes, no, absolutely. Um, uh, if you didn't hear at the back, the lady said that uh, surely compassion is a key, uh, compassion for what it is in our own humanity, compassion for our own, our own failings perhaps, our own weaknesses, is a crucial part of this process and I think that's absolutely right. And we're going to look at this tomorrow morning uh, because I think this, uh, that this sort of framework, um, this idea of, 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 of being able to totally accept ourselves, warts and all, um, is the necessary foundation for becoming a practicing person. If we don't do that, or if we have just a sort of conceptual idea of what it is to be the sort of being we are, uh, then it's easy to supersede that with some fantasy of, or some other conception of what we might be. But it's delusional, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's delusional. So I think what I find very, um, what it really engages me with this practice uh, of mindfulness, of attention, um, is, this, is, is, is this constant returning to the body, whether it's just sitting uh, or breathing or feeling, we keep coming back to the body. And the more that we do this, we realize, I think, at a very, in a very visceral sense, um, our, both our animality, animality and our humanity, they're not two separate things. They're entirely you know, welded together. And that kind of acceptance uh, I feel is a very um, is a very fundamental dimension of just sitting and paying attention. Uh, and without that, I think that our aspirations are more and more likely to be idealistic rather than realistic. 